At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole to find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guests today are Adam Zarzazinski and Cameron Smith of Inca Digital. Inca is a crypto data and analytics company that serves a wide range of clients from DARPA to banks to crypto exchanges, which makes Adam and Cameron well-versed on a wide variety of topics. We start with the shadowy world of North Korean hacking and crypto. We then talk about how Inca built a business model on top of open source data, the government's view on crypto, BlackRock's Bitcoin ETF, and much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam and Cameron. Adam and Cameron, thank you for joining me today. I think a fun place to start would be North Korean hacking, because that's always on people's minds. It always makes front page headlines in crypto, and it feels like the North Korean group Lazarus is always involved somehow or have a connection to the higher profile hacks. So maybe an interesting place to start would be, what is Lazarus? How are the North Koreans so involved in crypto? What is this group doing? So first, the name Lazarus is actually an operational name. It's one of many names they use to operate online. It's just the most infamous in this example. What we know is that there's at least one group under the North Korean intelligence services that does these type of actions, goes out, scams people, finds ways into crypto systems. Lazarus is one. And some of the other names, though, are funny. If you follow the news, one of the main operators, his name may be Giggle, it was Jammy Chen. And then along with Jammy Chen, there was like Cuddly Kitten. And there's a couple other pretty good ones that do not instill fear, but still should from what they do. So Inca has been able to basically go out and collect some data on what Lazarus does, how they do it, and where the money disappears. We don't know exactly, obviously, what program it goes to. The White House has said that it's going to their nuclear proliferation efforts. We don't have any data of that. Obviously, that's hard to get. But Inca can, at the outset, look at, for example, collect and analyze market data. We collect and analyze blockchain data. And we collect and analyze data from social media. Social media is often the best place to start because we can actually see OTC traders trading with the North Korean hackers on closed Telegram chats that we have access to. So you can watch as they're going back and forth in real time, negotiating a price for whatever coin it is they've ultimately laundered. 
And then with our market data, we can oftentimes see upticks in particular trading pairs that are connected to North Korean trading activity in one way or another. Just the patterns through which they trade the assets that they steal, it follows a certain pattern. We built some smarts. We're not perfect, obviously, but we built some smarts around identifying and analyzing those patterns, if that makes sense. It does. And so maybe a step back, when these hacks happen, I know that there's anti-crypto people that think all of crypto is just money laundering and bad activity, which obviously I don't subscribe to, but I do know it's a part of it. And I know it's a big deal and a problem across all financial transactions. So when these actions occur, I can imagine if you hack Bank of America, you could probably grab a bunch of money from smaller accounts. On the crypto side, are these attacking a treasury, like large honeypots of single amounts of money? Or are these more hacks against a bunch of individuals fishing and gathering money over time? It's both. So in terms of the way that they access funds, there's not one particular method that they're using. They're not using phishing every time, or they're not using brute force every time. They're more flexible than that. They're just looking at literally how much can they grab in the shortest time frame that they can launder. And yeah, you're right. It's almost a truism at this point that bad things happen in crypto, but they happen everywhere else too. It's not like people don't steal or launder US dollars. That argument has been made again and again. And it's a real argument. This is just a new technology and a new attack vector for them. And obviously, crypto is global, so you can move value easily. That's all this is, ultimately. There's no one singular way that they're doing it. If you look at the Axie Infinity hack, that was Lazarus Group. That was phishing. I might be getting my facts a little wrong off the top of my head, but I believe they convinced somebody that worked for the gaming company to take a tech test. And they were going back and forth on a resume to hire this person for a fake position and then access the gaming system that way. So they do that. They'll do brute force attacks. They utilize open source worms as well. So it's a little bit of everything. And I think there's been a lot of attention on North Korean Lazarus group hacking just because it's happening again and again and again. And then obviously, the other reason why the US is really interested in it is just because of the nexus with China. China's role in supporting the North Korean regime, in particular, in this instance, what they're doing is they're providing a lot of the OTC services to move that crypto back to fiat to then ultimately move to North Korea. That's what's happening. So Inc. is a private but for-profit enterprise. It sounds like the world of Jason Bourne government agencies that's usually doing this. So how does Inca play a role in what feels like a national security issue? So I think from a super high-level perspective, Inca's goal is to grow crypto, help crypto mature, and help provide data analytics to any firm that needs it. So while we do work a lot in the government and in national security in particular, we're also making sales to big banks, hedge funds, prop shops, large crypto financial service providers. A number of the centralized exchanges are our clients. So we're serving across the crypto ecosystem. And that's actually where we started out. And then we slowly started getting into national security. My background's in Intel, and I was active duty Air Force Jack for four years. So I hired on a couple other military people to early on in the company. And then we started getting more and more into national security work, starting with a contract with Special Operations Command and a contract with DARPA, with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Inca's goal, or at least part of our sales strategy, has been to sell into the government obviously to help America's national security and to help with this emergent issue, but also to then develop tech that the DOD finds useful and then reuse that tech back for banks that are custodying digital assets, for hedge funds that need more risk management and KYC AML, 
other than what the forensics companies are providing. So for us, it's been a really useful tool to do a little bit of product discovery too. So across the other lines, you have financial services firms like hedge funds, banks, prop shops. You've got the exchanges that you sell to that have data. One thing that struck me early on, it was naive, I think at first, the first time I came across a data provider, I was like, well, it's all publicly available. So what is the business model to taking data? So walk me through exactly what the value add and services that you guys offer. So you're right. Ultimately, all of the data that we have is open source data. And if you have the tools and the capability and the team, you can go out and collect and analyze that data. But the trick is actually operationalizing that. It's really hard. It's taken us, whatever, five years now to get to the point where we're at. Long, long days. So I think if you do a really rough breakdown of the data that we collect, we collect and analyze market data and we plug into the open APIs at centralized and decentralized exchanges globally. In our API currently, we've got, I don't know, 120 exchanges-ish. But again, yeah, all that's open data. But it takes a lot of work in the back end to connect to it, clean it, make sense of it. And then the second category of data that we collect and analyze is blockchain data and other technical data. We're not a forensics company. We still run our own nodes and try to productize that. But we also collect data from GitHub repos. It's all open source. Anybody can go out and collect it. But we're building some analytics models on top of data like that to analyze for how robust a particular project is, how decentralized a particular project is. We have a term at Inca for fake decentralized projects. We call them dinos, decentralized in name only. But then when you actually look at the data that sits behind it, it's a very centralized company with a strict hierarchy. And then we collect natural language data. So I mentioned we collect a lot of data from social media. And all it really is, is building the pipes to collect that data and then figuring out where there's product market fit. How can we serve a government agency or a bank or another financial service provider data analytics that look, smell, and feel like what they would expect in other asset classes, but have behind the scenes completely novel data sources and ways to look at that data beyond what obviously the forensics companies are doing a lot of interesting work, but beyond what they provide. For my own understanding, when you say we're not a forensics company, what does that mean that you're not? Because if someone says they're a data and analytics company, they're providing Intel. I don't know what's the difference between that and a forensics company. So this is an oversimplification, but at a very baseline level, what the forensics companies do is they run nodes on different blockchains and they track funds moving from wallet A to wallet B to wallet C. And they are able to tag those wallet addresses. They can say this wallet address belongs to this centralized exchange or this wallet address was used at a gambling website, or we think this wallet address is somehow connected to a sanctioned wallet address from OFAC. It's an oversimplification, but that's what they do. We don't do that. We don't have a front-end GUI that allows you to take that action. We are looking more at market data and market surveillance, and then data from news and social media, using that to connect what's happening in the real world to crypto and vice versa. Think about it like this. If you think blockchain forensics companies are taking a bottom-up approach to data analytics and crypto, they're basically looking at what's happening on the blockchain and then trying to connect that to names of companies and other funding flows. We're doing the opposite. We're taking a top-down approach. We're taking actual actors, people, companies, physical addresses, market data, and we're connecting that back to what's happening in crypto. It's almost the inverse of what the forensics companies are doing. And therefore, we just need different data sets to do it. I was just going to embellish on what Adam was saying. 
it's a fuller look at what's going on. You've got the market data, you've got the social media data. You do use blockchain data, but we're looking at everything. There's just more context there. And that's helpful in an investigation where you don't know where it's going. You're not necessarily looking for a particular wallet address or movement. Maybe you need to get a fuller picture of, let's say you're an investigator trying to start down a whole chain of events. You might want to start with social media, look for relationships between various people. Maybe they are limited partners in some company. Maybe they're college roommates. There's a whole array of relationships you could track all the way down to the blockchain to draw a fuller story and understanding of what's going on. So is the data you provide, when I think about traditional finance, you have probably three really large data providers. It's an oligopoly. Even though it's a lot of publicly available data, they basically can charge whatever they want because they're the only ones who have the most comprehensive data sets. In crypto, the first question is, is that where you see the world going, that it ends up being just like the Bloomberg, Reuters, ICE, whoever owns who at this point? And then a follow-up question is, to Cam's point, is that value-add service different than just buying a data license from a major traditional data provider? Just looking at history. For market data, it always starts out free. It certainly did in the equity space and all that. And so you're right, anyone can replicate, but it's a resource allocation issue. Ultimately, if you're a trading firm or whatever your business in it is in crypto, a custodian or something, how much time do you want to spend taking in and writing to 100 different APIs, updating them, going through the data? A lot of these exchanges aren't very efficient. Connections drop all the time. You got to go and realign and scrape the data, depending on if you're trading right, the quality of the data has to be super aligned and very accurate, else your models are going to be faulty. So there's a lot of quality issues there. For the public, it's centralized because it's efficient for like a Bloomberg or Reuters or somebody. But if you're a trader, you probably do it yourself or there's only a few top tier providers, it's quite expensive because the quality has to be there. So I think it centralizes on the retail side, but I think on the professional side, there's probably pockets of expertise depending on the needs of, again, a trading firm is going to need maybe different data than a custodian or an index fund or something. That was a perfect answer, Cam. And to the second part of the question, I think crypto is still very new and very new for non-crypto native financial service providers in a way that complicates even simply providing data. So in the equity space, you more or less have standardized APIs and people more or less know what they need. And there's still innovation happening in the data analytics space in traditional equities, but there's a lot of understanding there on what I as a financial service provider need to do X or Y or Z or whatever. In crypto, the challenge that I think we face a lot is people don't necessarily know what they need. They have an idea, okay, we need an API of open, high, low, close volume VWAP. But beyond that, we need something to help with risk management. We need something to make sure that we don't get in trouble from treasury. But what those things are, we don't know, but we need help. So for us, I think an important selling point and an important element of the business that we have is while we do sell data, we typically try to pair it with at least a very part-time subject matter expert for most of our clients to collaborate with and noodle ideas with. Because oftentimes our APIs answer the mail for a few operational needs, but new operational needs always come up. And as the cycles go, it has been around now for five years, and it's a industry that it seems highly prone to very big booms and busts. I'm curious in how does the client base change through the different cycles? So it was an intentional decision about a year and a half ago to focus on government sales. 
And this was during not the crypto boom, but a crypto boom. And we were making sales in crypto and we were making sales in TradFi, but it was basically our thesis that, and this was pre-FTX, that there was still a slight legitimacy problem in crypto. And that if we were as a community going to get to the next level, if TradFi was going to stop screwing around and no shit get into crypto, it was going to take a little bit of time and it was going to take some guidance or action on the part of financial regulators and the U.S. government overall here in the U.S., of course, focused here. So with that, we made a conscious decision to focus on government sales, both so that it's credentialing for us. It shows that we're a serious B2B data analytics provider, but also we can help guide some of the data analytics necessary in the space to achieve the operational things that need to be achieved, whether that's KYC, AML, or risk management or whatever. So it was a conscious decision. That's a long-winded answer. Most of our clients right now are government. We still have some of the other sectors too. We have, like I said, some sexes and dexes and some bigger players in TradFi. I got a pithy way to explain that. I think when things are hot, Eric, that no one's bothering with compliance or too busy counting their money. And then when things get cold, they're not going to spend on compliance. It's an interesting time right now, though, is that we're in that middle zone and we're coming out of it with the BlackRock ETF potential sitting out there. I don't know how many days we have left until we find out what happens there. But if there's some mainstreaming going on, maybe this is the market where folks are, we're in that sweet spot where they are going to be more interested in compliance than they were during either the booms or the bust because they're either too busy partying or too busy slitting their wrist. So if we can't have either one to make a sale on the commercial side. That's a brutal honesty. I like it. On the government side, let's just start there. So if it was lacking legitimacy before FTX, it went right down the gutter post-FTX. What has the government's reaction been as you've interacted with them, especially in the space of you're usually there when something bad has happened? It's not as bad as people make it out to be. I know this is like really broad broad strokes, but I think that there's a general acknowledgement in the government that crypto is here to stay and that... There needs to be a set of policies and laws that foster crypto growth here in the U.S. I'm not saying all the actors are good. And of course, the U.S. government writ large can do better, but it's also not so negative. I've never interacted with anybody that's like, oh, I want to stomp out crypto from the U.S. and the world or anything like that. I have not seen that. I think, Cam, actually, your experience in HFT is hugely valuable here because you've seen this, almost this exact same thing play out in HFT. Why don't you talk to that and your interactions with the government and I don't know how you see this debate playing out. On our DARPA interactions and all that, I think they've been pretty even kill. I think you're right. It's been all about just understanding it. I think with some of the agencies we've talked to or government groups, they typically are presented some issue and how do you then attack that issue? There's something going on in crypto. I was defrauded or we think there's something going on in this part of the world. And they just start from a position. I don't even know how to look at this crypto thing. Where do I go to learn? How do I make sense of it? What are the relevant metrics? They don't have a mental model. But if Adam, you were asking just a historical, the equity space, when it went electronic in the early 2000s, that's a similar story. I think it's a little bit of a segue, but it's a similarity and pattern where the hostility toward it and then the acceptance thing. And we see this all over the economy. So this isn't news to most people who are following these things. But when we started out with electronic markets, when we took NASDAQ and made electronic or started trading New York listed securities, or the QQQ was the big one that was traded on the Amex at the time. The triple Q was dominated by the American Stock Exchange by a specialist. 
we brought that on the screen and we were stealing all the volume and it wasn't like anyone came and thanked us and said, hey, Island, you guys are great for making this way more efficient. Wow, those spreads narrowed. And we just did the calculation. You save investors billions of dollars already trading this year in the QQQ overall. Said nobody ever to us. Mostly it was, we got to shut you down. We have real concerns. And it was a fight. And so obviously crypto is, banking sector is big, but if you're getting all the new accounts and a lot of the new money's going into this new place, they can see eventually that's going to start to hurt them. It's not going to be open arms just any more than it was with just a simple electronic market. If there's hostility to that, now do money. No, I think it's a great point, Cameron, that anytime someone finds a way to go after large financial services, there's usually a lot of adversity to stopping it and concerns about systemic risk. And high-frequency trading is an interesting one, which there's never really been a sympathizer to HFT. It's usually considered evil or it was just a greedy business wasting time. Yeah. Well, I remember as a natural outgrowth to electronic markets, once you had electronic market where basically all of trading before was glorified emails. Hey, Eric, I want to buy hundred shares of IBM. Oh, let me look at this order. Let me wait 30 or 40 seconds or a couple of minutes and decide if the market's about to move in my favor or against me. And I'll either take the trade or not. It was all free options being given to people. A miniature insider trading, if you will. Once it went electronic and on screen, High-frequency trading was a natural outgrowth. And it's not high-frequency trading, it's just the ability to execute immediately that is totally fair. You put up an order and I can interact with it and you don't get to say, oh, never mind, I changed my mind. I didn't really, did I said sell you my house for a million dollars? I really meant 1.1 million. Or no, never mind. That's just nonsense. So that was a change. I don't know, sorry, a bit of a tangent, but high-frequency trading itself is a term that was foisted on the industry. But of course, you're going to trade electronically when you have an electronic market accessible through an API, which is how I assume a lot of crypto is traded as well, at least by the professional traders. It's all driven by algorithm. So I think there's an interesting view there that the market structure that equity took, that fixed income, the markets that I come from still really hasn't gotten, it's moved a little bit in that direction, but it's still antiquated in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of people, we talked about this on one of the last interviews we did, that there's trade five people specifically in fixed income credit that are just fascinated by crypto fascinated by settlement, fascinated by the rails. How do you see potentially crypto's rails impacting traditional assets or any type of market structure? That's a tough question. It's so much more efficient. Your T plus zero, just with my equity hat on, everything's different. Start basic. You can't buy a stock without a broker. So I got to use Charles Schwab and then only he can be the member of the exchange. Compare that to, I can just sign up at Coinbase and trade, or I can go on Uniswap and just swap stuff around. Nobody knows who anybody is. It's completely decentralized. And then it's settling in real time. And the intermediaries are just gone for the most part. But it gets so mind-blowing to even wrap your head around how many people that pulls out of the system and how much it simplifies it. But then also brings risk because back to Inca, in a sense, in a world where you're not just doing business with other club members, you're just doing business with the whole world and you don't even know who they are. Everyone's anonymous. You're going to need to come up with other ways to do some risk analysis. Who is this person? What are they doing on my platform? Or why are they trading with me? And is this North Korea in disguise or whatever? And you're going to need a different tool set, I think, than a world where just two members of New York Stock Exchange or two NASDAQ members who are all regulated FINRA members. So somewhere in there, I think I threw out more issues than I answered, but that's a big question. I'm sure there'll be some books about that one. No, no, it's spot on. I think it's an interesting thing to think about. And I don't know if you have a view of 
if decentralized finance or just decentralized transactions are inevitable and that we've got to find a new system to regulate it, or if the natural path is that anytime we get a technology, centralization is inevitable because people want safety, they want to understand it's just too hard to wrangle this in a truly decentralized fashion. I don't think that we set it out as this either or dichotomy. I think it's going to be a little bit of both, ultimately. Just like we're seeing with the ETF right now, TradFi is going to co-opt, as well they should, technology and some of the use cases into what they do. But I don't think that DeFi is going away either. In fact, if anything, I think it's going to grow. And just as Cam said, the question is not whether it's here to stay. It's just more in this new paradigm. How do we make sure that these markets are fair and aren't stealing people's money and aren't funding North Korean nukes? And if we can do those things, it's amazing. It's a great path for more financial inclusion. We just need to figure out that part. And that's what we're trying to do. You mentioned the BlackRock ETF and part of the SEC's pushback on, I don't even know how many ETFs have filed at this point and been rejected has been the view that since the areas of trading aren't regulated, we don't have centralized exchanges with national oversight, that there's this risk of market manipulation. So it it seems to be that that's been one of the linchpins the SEC has used to not approve it and that they want some surveillance sharing agreement. I think it's the SSA to say, we can comfortably say that these markets aren't manipulated. What does it mean? How do you prove markets aren't being manipulated? Because that seems like a very broad and nefarious definition. I happen to think that that's probably not why it's not being approved at the moment. They have to have a statutory basis. There are laws and Administrative Procedures Act and all that. They got to give a good faith reason, as it were. Having looked through that case and looked at the oral arguments on the Grayscale case, it's a very convoluted argument they get there. And the obvious Well, the one they approved a futures ETF. And so you wonder how the underlying has such an obvious impact on it. So if you approve the futures, why wouldn't you approve the spot? And then the other obvious elephant in the room is, well, how is this different than gold or copper or lithium or anything else where those spot markets are traded? Whatever drives those, and yet the CME can't be actively surveilling all that. They don't surveillance sharing agreements with Saudi royal family on oil. Whatever you would need in order to prove there's no manipulation, I think it'd be pretty difficult. So it doesn't seem like that's what they're laying their hat on. And I think maybe one of the things that will come out of this is the exchanges that are part of this plan are going to have to give up customer identity. So it'd be my thought that the cost of this ETF approval will be that a Coinbase or a Kraken are going to be pressured if this ETF is going to get approved. If there's a surveillance concern, oh, look, Bitcoin was trading at 30810 and we saw a bunch of trades. They look weird and maybe a bunch of bids were pooled and they were big and looked like somebody was trying to spoof or something. Who was that? They're going to ask who it is. And Coinbase is going to have an interesting policy question for themselves. Are they going to give up that information? Because in the equity world, that's given up. Charles Schwab's going to say, that was Eric. I don't know what he was doing. Bring him in. Talk to him. Hopefully, the anonymity won't be gone on a trade for trade. No one's going to have a product to see who did every trade per se. But when there's something unusual going on, they'll be able to use those surveillance sharing agreements to get at identity. And so maybe all these delays helps them get that. I don't know if our hardcore, some of the US Bitcoin exchanges have been in terms of providing that, but all these delays maybe loosened them up. That's one possibility. I don't know, theorizing, because I don't think the basis they've given is totally true. Eric, I'll add that I think we do some cross-market surveillance. 
we do it privacy preserving though, to the degree that we can. So right now we're doing mostly statistical analysis and the market data that we collect to analyze for wash trading, front running, other types of market manipulation, but we're using it at the trade level. So we don't have the name of every trader with attached to every bid and ask on a particular exchange. We're more doing higher level statistical analysis to analyze for those things. And then we can identify, obviously, the specific trades that are happening on an exchange and say, this looks like it might be something bad. And then whether it's the exchange using that or one of our regulatory clients using that, they'll go through the channels that they need to go through to get deeper in the weeds in that data. Whether or not the SEC is looking for more, I think that there is probably a path where there's going to be more demand for higher fidelity market data to perform market surveillance in one form or fashion. And we're doing some of that in Canada, but here in the US, we'll see how it all plays out around whether or not the ETF actually gets approved and what those data sharing agreements actually look like. What is your prediction if you give it a probability on the ETF being approved? I have no idea. I can't. I think it will be. I don't know why BlackRock would have filed just to get disapproved. Typically, before you file something, you have an informal communication and they give you an indication. I don't think they would have filed that cold with no idea what the SEC was willing to do. That seems unlikely to me. See, and I have heard from other people that there's a chance that that's exactly what they did, though, that they just applied for it cold. And even if they don't get approved, so be it. They'll just wait for the SEC to change its policies and just refile. But simply having it out there is of no harm to BlackRock. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm at 80% that it gets approved. I'm still not that jaded that I think like they worked with the government to get a special approval, although I'm sure they've got great lawyers, but Fidelity has great lawyers and they filed and were rejected. So big firms have filed and been rejected. I definitely think strategically it's of good timing to the point that Cameron made earlier. They've been trying to hang on this case. People are reading the tea leaves with grayscale. They're seeing the argument being held that there's this market manipulation, transparency problem that everyone's scratching their head, whether you use commodities like oil as an example, or how can you not do the future example? I think that argument's just getting weakened and weakened. And if they're ready to lose, BlackRock was savvy enough to say, this is what we're going to do. And this is the exact strategic time to do it. And we're going to set it up. So it's really hard to say no this time, because if you give them everything they want, I think people know they're not saying yes, they just have to find a reason to say no. And if they don't say no, then it's a yes. So I'm pretty optimistic that this is going to get approved this time and that BlackRock was just clever and savvy enough to get it before the others did. One thing, as we were just talking about structure and looking at the data, perhaps as it pertains to equity, to me, it always felt the richest data sets were extremely expensive in equity. You couldn't see them. Not everyone had access to the best data. Even though it might've been achievable, it came with a very high dollar price. And I'm curious, in the crypto market, if you were starting a trading firm today, just based on the resources available to you, how does crypto compare to traditional assets? Oh, it's a really low bar to entry for a couple of reasons. First, even the data analytics providers in the space, for the most part, are still new enough and competing with each other. There's enough competition in our market that like to work with legit companies that are trying to grow and grow with them. And not only that, but honestly, there's a lot of great free data out there. It just depends on your operational needs. 
So it's a low bar to entry for that reason, just because of the competition among the data analytics companies. And the other thing I would say is, I still think that there's an ethos in crypto where we do want to help each other and we do want just the industry to do good and do well. And I think most of the data analytics companies out there are still part of that ethos and willing to help. So I know I've offered our data for free, not everything, but I'll give you one example. So we've got a tool that just provides, think of it like FINRA broker check, but on steroids for crypto. It's just a way to check people names, company names, wallet addresses, physical addresses, and see if we have any derogatory information on those things. It also happens to include every sanctioned person and company in the US and Europe. So it's all of that data. It was a significant workload on us, and we gave it to Next to Free for a decentralized DEX because they were just struggling to find a cost-effective way to operate. And we're obviously concerned with OFAC, but wanted to do something beyond just a basic forensics tool. And so I said, listen, man, we'll give this to you until you get your feet underneath you, and then we'll renegotiate. So I think that ethos is still very present in crypto, and people are willing to help grow companies that are being innovative in the space. And of the cycle wood right now, about a year and a half, you moved to government. But I am curious in a crypto winter, where, if at all, you see pockets of green shoots or startups or areas of interest that people that are potentially new Inca clients? I'll give you two examples. First of all, we're seeing a lot of need for how do we perform KYC, AML, and counterparty risk management, especially with DEXs that don't necessarily have a lot of user information. What do they do? if they don't have wallet addresses. Some of them do, some of them don't. What do they do? And oftentimes too, you're talking to a team of maybe 10 to 15 people, but they've got two devs that are backlogged with development work for six months and they need something that's operationalizes them now. So we've made a lot of headway with something that we call crypto threat intelligence reports, where it's basically, okay, Dex, we're going to take all of the operational work off of your plate. We're gonna use all of our tools and services and we're just going to give you a data-driven monthly report of all the bad shit that is happening on your platform, where it's happening, and recommendations for stopping that thing. And that can be everything. That's everything from regulatory risk to foreign state actors that are trying to launder money through your platform to market manipulations that are happening on your platform if they share market data with us. There's a data sharing agreement that goes along with that. So we've seen a lot of traction there as new companies pop up. And then the other category is in what we already talked about with cross-market surveillance. We're seeing a lot more asks for analytics that sit on top of market data to find liquidity, identify fake trading volume, identify fraud in markets, things like that. On the DEX, just because you mentioned the KYC and the AML stuff, who governs or is asking them to do that? So I've always been curious with the centralized exchanges makes a little bit more sense with me. Are the DEXs doing it? just because they're trying to be on the right side of it? Or are they forced in any way legally or through regulation that they should be doing it? Honestly, I don't know enough about, I can't interpret the law and policy on what they should or should not be doing. It's typically, they're operations folks that are, I think, more concerned that they're just going to get smacked with a fine for doing something wrong that's going to take them out of business. Cam can talk more about this than me, but just even some of the strict liability around some of these rules where even if you didn't know, but you should have known, you're going to find in the tens of millions of dollars. And a lot of these companies wouldn't survive that. Drill in on that that uh, SDN list. I forget. Do you remember what SDN stands for? Specially designated national. 
So if they're on that list, you can't do business with them. So I get it, Eric, on one hand, hey, we're decentralized. It's not our job. But on the other hand, why put an arrow on your back a little bit? If you could just run some of these wallet addresses or things through and just make sure it's not North Korea, maybe that's worth it because now you're in this world. The OFAC, as Adam said, it's unbelievable. It's strict liability. Even if you had no reason to know, now it's prosecutorial discretion. I'm sure they love DEXs over there at Treasury, so I'm sure they'll be lenient on you. They won't find you or mess with you at all or leak it to the media, like what happened with Kraken, where they were looking at them. It involved Iran. I think they did some business with allegedly, and all they did was leak it, and it was harmful. So I think it makes sense for a firm to try to stay away from it as best you can. Whether you have the legal obligation, to me, that's a secondary argument. If I was at one of those firms, number one thing is keep your head down, try to grow the business so that you're too big for them to mess with you. But you got to make it through between here and there. And being right might not be enough sometime when regulators are after you. On the second point, the cross-exchange liquidity looking for pockets, is that coming from traditional trading firms or is that more for the crypto native hedge funds and proprietary shops looking for liquidity? Both. Yeah, both. I think the difference is that the bigger traditional side, the deeper you get into HFT and real prop style trading firms, they're typically doing their own connections and they're building their own stuff in-house. So sometimes they'll use our cross-market surveillance tool, but other than that, they're building all their market stuff in-house. So you're looking at TradFi that isn't solely focused on trading or isn't solely HFT. And of those firms, have you seen an uptick or a bounce back? I don't know if the BlackRock ETF got people's attention. You had the SEC lawsuits, you this back and forth. And so I'm always curious from the founders and the builders like you guys on what the sentiment has been. Well, Adam just put it in an article I read there. Adam, good job talking about some of the large trading firms are moving offshore because they're waiting for the dust to settle here in the US. So they're going to Singapore. They're already probably there, but they're shutting down or de-emphasizing their US offices and presence. And it's a wait and see attitude because there's no reason to expose themselves. Think of a jump or somebody or Hudson River. They have incredibly great businesses. There's no reason to risk it on crypto at this point. So they're taking a very conservative approach. They want to be there. They're believers, I'm sure, at those firms. But at the same time, they've got too much to lose. So I think that they've been waiting, I think, on this BlackRock thing and some of the other things to get worked out. There's legislation out there. We'll see if any of this stuff moves and we'll get some clarity and we can stop being so nervous about it. So I think that's where the big dogs are, at least the big trading firms. Sound right, Adam? Yeah, that's it. And this is not to plug the article, but it's just an interesting point. What Cam was referring to was, I was essentially making the argument, Eric, to tie this back to national security, that the offshoring of all of this liquidity on what are essentially US companies and some of the biggest liquidity providers in the world, I actually see as a national security issue. Putting aside the North Korea discussion, the US is losing the commercial battle here too. You've got only three out of the top 15 exchanges by volume are based in the US and every other single one is a Chinese founder that is based in Hong Kong. That's a problem. And we're talking about billions of dollars in volume every single day, all of it offshore. And now all of the liquidity providers have left too. That's a problem for the United States and the growing industry. Within the context, obviously, of our general competition with China and within that race to corner tech markets within context. No, it's very interesting. I think that I was asked that question about a year ago. 
someone asked me about offshoring or people leaving and I had mixed feelings. I definitely have some friends. I just had a good friend who is getting his UAE citizenship and moving his whole firm. And it's a really impressive trading firm with really great ex-trade five people leaving the country. So I know of it happening, but I also felt like, okay, the US is still the place where most of the capital markets are. People are going to want to build these businesses here. But I think being an entrepreneur in that space, you really have to make a serious decision that you're trying to build something and you can be trying to follow all the rules, but putting your family in jeopardy is enough of a risk to get caught up in something you had no intention of violating because of the uncertainty. It really is a serious thing. So I tend to agree with you of there's definitely a lot more leaving than I'd like to see. And I would like to see it cleared up, but I'm also a little bit pessimistic that we're not going to see that type of clarity for several years. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm more hopeful than that. I think that we'll see action sooner rather than later. Everybody knows that it has become a partisan issue too, but I can see the winds starting to change, at least on the Hill. And I think that there's an acknowledgement that the US needs to do better to compete here. So I'm hoping that something happens sooner than cup in a few years, but obviously only time will tell. We'll see. I'm more bullish on the BlackRock ETF and you're more bullish on regulation. So yeah, fair enough. Hopefully we're both right. So we end these podcasts with the same question every time. What are you most excited to build over the next six months and over the next six years? Oh, God, that's a hard question. Over the next six months, I think continuing the theme of the Bitcoin ETF and the needs for cross-market surveillance there, I am looking forward to continuing to develop in those capabilities. I think that what we've got so far is a great start. But there's just going to be a lot of need, regardless, honestly, if the ETF this time gets approved or not, for more market surveillance and especially for cross-market surveillance, where you're not just looking at your own market, but you're looking at your market and everybody else's market at the same time. So I'm looking forward to V2 of what we have there. Long-term, in the next six years, I am looking forward to building out more sustainable useful intelligence tools using social media. We'll see what happens, but what Elon Musk has been doing with Twitter is actually kind of a godsend for us because we collect Twitter data and we analyze it. But as information and intelligence dissipate and spreads across all of social media, we are already starting to see Twitter lose a foothold as the first place where information comes from. We're starting to see more use of Reddit, Discord's always been there, I guess, but even I would say heavier use of Discord. And the more disparate that data is, the better it is for us because we're one of the few companies that can go out, grab it and analyze it in a sustainable way. Right now, everybody knows they can go to Twitter and get a lot of great intel. As that information starts to spread to new places, I think it only benefits us. And that's a long process. X is not going to go away overnight. Or maybe it will. We'll see. No, that's really interesting. Thank you guys for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate your time, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 